folks. Thanks for joining us tonight. You know you're in for a treat when you hear that tune because it means it's time for another week of the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Reed, Blusterini in the home game and at Rec Poker Jim on Twitter. And I have the best freaking job in the world talking poker with my friends here on the show every Monday night while we steal each other's chips in the free nightly home game. Uh, here at Rec Poker, we play for fun, but it's more fun when you win. So we study together, we play together, we celebrate together. And it all starts with a free membership at rec.poker, where all it takes to join is an email address and a smile. Um, all right, we're going to look at a strategy forum post in a moment, um, like we do every week here on the forums edition of the podcast. But first, I have to thank our sponsors, the Running Aces Hotel, Racetrack, and Casino. Uh, most of what we do here is free, so we're a largely volunteer-based organization. So we depend on the support from our sponsors and also from our premium members who take part in our training material and study opportunities every month for only $15 a month. And remember, you can get your first month for only 5 bucks by using the code RECPOKER at checkout. Now, they let me host the show on Mondays, but I am only one man, and it takes a group, a gang, a crew to make all the magic happen around here. We call this group of wizards the Wrecking Crew. And if you want to learn more about me or the rest of the Wrecking Crew, you can head on over to rec.poker slash crew, or you can listen up because you're going to meet a few of them right here on the air, starting with our own Kim Kilroy. I'm Kim Kilroy. I am 3056 in the home game. Uh, Pet or Pet Bat 33 on most platforms. Hi, I'm Mark, and you can find me on the Mr. Bullet on the Wrecking Crew page. I'm Rob Wasson, and you can find me as Rabman50 just about everywhere. I'm Taylor Moss. You can find me on Twitter at Taylor underscore Moss or as GopherboyTJM in the Rec Poker home game. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, everyone, tonight. This is some of the my, mostly my highlight of the week talking poker with this uh, gang of wizards. Um, we're going to be talking tonight about sort of the experience of getting to the final table um, in like a casino daily tournament. Taylor actually had a really deep run. No spoilers. Uh, Taylor had a fantastic deep run recently and um, wanted to sort of explain and sort of discuss some of the concepts, some of the factors that are on people's minds as ICM becomes more and more important and uh, how we might adjust our play in those kind of circumstances. So Taylor, why don't you kind of take us through your experience and uh, congratulations again on the nice finish the other day. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, I, I think this is kind of from Rob. Rob was kind of, we were talking about this just beforehand and Rob said, hey, talk to me about it. Like, you know, what was it like? How did people behave? Uh, what were those other factors? And we're like, this would probably be a pretty good uh, episode just to chat about uh, all the different uh, considerations, what we saw, what we've seen at other dailies. Um, and I thought it was a great idea. So um, for me, uh, it was a 75-person field tournament, so relatively small, uh, and then a 10-person uh, making the money uh, situation, and then nine making a final table. So we made the money just like slightly before. Um, just like generally speaking, uh, with what I saw with some of the people's play when we were getting there, uh, it felt like it was very non-ICM aware up until the point that we got to 14 people left. Uh, there was a clear differentiator like when, when that happened. And it may have just been like the stacks that were around at that given time 
or just the fact that people knew it was 10. And once you get down to playing seven handed, then it started to kind of like feel that crunch of what was going on. But I, I honestly think it took that like starting to play shorthanded for people to start to realize, hey, we're getting close to the money. We should be changing how things work. Uh, because even with 18, 17, 16 people left, I think we went from 18 to 14 incredibly quickly um, when in my mind, that really shouldn't be the case. Like you should really be slowing the pace of play down. You should really be very selective with the spots that you're taking. Um, but I was uh, not seeing that as we were kind of getting close to the money there. So I want to take off from that point right there, um, Taylor, about playing shorthanded. Cause I remember in my own earlier in my own poker career, when I was, you know, making final tables for the first time, I remember being like surprised that you get down into like 20 something people and all of a sudden you're playing seven handed. Um, and then the tables and then the third table breaks and now you've got two tables left and you're 18. By the time you get down to 13, 12, 11, again, you're five and six handed again. And you've been playing the whole tournament up until this point, full ring, but you can, and, and now you kind of, then you get to the final table and all of a sudden it's full ring again. So there's these adjustments to being shorthanded that are even in addition to ICM considerations. And I remember when that, when that was a new idea to me, that kind of threw me for a loop a little bit. I didn't know how much to open up my ranges or how much more widely to defend my blinds or like, should I be three betting more or folding more? Um, well, I'll just open this up to the panel. Uh, when, when you do get in that spot where that third table's breaking, that fourth table's breaking, you're, you're starting to play five, six, seven handed. Do you guys make adjustments that don't have anything to do with ICM, but just have to do with playing at a more shorthanded table? Um, Taylor and Rob, you guys have unmuted, so I'll let you jump in. Uh, not necessarily, but indirectly, yes, I would say that I make adjustments. Uh, I wouldn't say like, hey, I'm looking to three bet more, or I'm looking to open more, or I'm looking to defend my big blind more or less. Um, but I am very much trying to notice how others are reacting to the shorthanded play. Cause I think others, like you're saying, like if they haven't been there that often, like they start to really get thrown off on how they should behave in certain scenarios uh, and start to act a little bit differently. Um, so I will be very specific about how I'm playing against specific opponents in terms of like, whose big blind is this? Who's behind me left to act? And how are they changing up their play? Because honestly, when we were uh, 14 people left and playing seven handed, um, the person to my direct left was calling a lot in position versus opens. And I needed to be able to adapt and change how I'm playing versus that specific opponent to be able to adjust for that. Because normally you get down to there, it's like you just kind of don't want to play hands. You want to try and sneak into the money. You don't want to risk all the chips that you have. This person was leaning very much in the opposite direction in terms of, hey, I still have the button. I'll have position. I'm still going to play all these hands. Uh, and it was a bit of like a difference than I would expect versus the normal. So I had to kind of adjust for those situations. Yeah, I was in a similar situation, a little smaller tournament, 40 people. And it paid five, and we were at the final table of nine. And it was very interesting because there was only like one other person at the table that I got the feel that she was ICM aware. 
And everybody else was just playing the way they had been playing that whole night. And I thought it was very interesting. So I, I was very careful looking at physician, looking at my chip stack in relation to the people behind me and being very careful with how I approached it, but also very aggressive when I had the button and I had those other two players covered. So it was, you know, it, you knew that they weren't going to call properly mm-hmm. in that case. You knew that they were going to fold more than they normally would. So it was very easy to attack that and steal blinds and, and make chips that way. So we, we've talked on the show before about how poker is unlike other games, because if your opponent makes certain mistakes in poker, it can cost you a lot of money as well. And ICM is one of those spots where if you're playing against someone and you are, if you think that they know ICM and that they're feeling a lot of ICM pressure, but if in fact they're not even thinking about ICM, they're going to get into pots with you that they really shouldn't be getting into. And they're going to get it to showdown more often. And that can actually really hurt you because it introduces that variance into your game. Um, Mark, I'm kind of curious to hear your take on this a bit. You're a very experienced uh, player. You've gotten to the final tables a lot. Like, How do you tell if a player is conscious about ICM? Like, How can you tell, is this person ICM aware or... Are they going to make the kind of mistake that could drag me down with them by 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 not playing in the in the correct way when it comes to spots like this? Mm, I have a lot of thoughts now coming to my head. I don't know where. Perfect. To start. So All right. First, uh, first thing is um, you were talking about a, sh- um, a tournament size of seventy five people, and there's a big difference between like smaller fields and bigger fields. Right, bigger fields would be 500 and upwards, and smaller fields would be 200 and lower. Uh, I think the biggest difference is once you get once you play a shorter, smaller field, actually having chips or winning chips during those crucial ICM spots are so important because it can translate to a win. And when you have like a thousand people feel like you actually have to squeak into the money, like it's so important to cash because unless you have like a big stack, then you actually are incentivized to gamble, not to gamble, but to like confront another big stack. And actually, because doubling up against that person could make, could guarantee you a deep run. Whereas like if you have 10 big blinds and you should just try to survive, it's survive in a big field so in a small field you have 10 big blinds like there's no guarantee that um the bubble is gonna bust so you have to do something and um like doing something or like playing more aggressively will translate into like a higher position at the final table so that's like a big thing that most people are not aware of yeah i like that and it's true that in the bigger field tournaments the bubble bursts a lot more quickly because people are being eliminated on more tables, right? Yeah, think uh, about it this way. So um, when you play a smaller field, like two tables, you only have like two tables that where people can make mistakes. But if you have like a thousand, like 5,000 people playing uh, at entries, you will have like, I don't know how many people get paid, 600. 
and 600 divided by 10, let's just say 10, uh, they will have like 60, 60 tables. On each of those 60 tables, there is someone making mistakes. So it's really important to actually cache because, and it, like there are some spots where you're supposed to hold a thing mm. uh, because like you doubling up from 10 to 20 big blinds, it's not going to guarantee the next pay jump. And the first pay jump is from zero to like the min cache, which mm. is huge. And then the next cash from the min cash to the next payout is like a couple hundred bucks. So you doubling up your stack will not guarantee will not even guarantee you like to get the next pay jump, right? Or like even if you double up from 10 to 20 big blinds, it doesn't mean that let's say you get the main cash is two thousand. It doesn't mean that you will get a guaranteed four thousand dollar like right. cash, right? You yes. might get twenty five hundred. So it's not even really worth it. Yeah, like doubling your stack doesn't double yeah. the your expectation of, of winning twice as much. Because yeah, yeah, I think I yeah. I get that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so it, it, when it comes to uh, a field size like this, a tournament uh, series like this, when when do we when should we start feeling ICM pressure in a spot like this? Ten players get paid. Uh, Taylor, are you unmuted there. Why don't you jump in? Yeah, I. Um, I think Rob's talked about this in the past, and uh, I also watched the same video that he talked about uh, with this, but GTO Wizard, I think, put a video out uh, a few months ago, and they were kind of talking about this and like, how should you be changing your ranges based off of like the size of the field left? And I believe the answer in that was like a sizable difference in how well you do very early on to start adjusting for ice, like based mm. off of the amount of field that's left. Um, I believe it was like 50% of the field or maybe even uh, showed some signs at like 75% of the field. That's when you should start, but it's again, like small changes, but I think people just play, yeah. here's how I view the tournament. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh no, we're close to the money shift play tight <laughs> and go after this and like all those different types of things. So um, I, I think it's, it's gotta be way more gradual mm. when you're, when you're looking at these types of things, like you should be slowly kind of tightening up ranges, potentially changing how you're playing against other bigger stacks, smaller stacks as you go through there. Um, but if there's a third left in the field and you're not really like be trying to become a little bit ICM aware or how far are we away from potentially bagging from potentially uh, getting close to however many tables are left. I, I think that would be a mistake to not make be making adjustments with like a third of the field left. Uh, Rob. Yeah. The, yeah, I think the video you're talking about is on GTO wizard. The really, the minute somebody is eliminated from the tournament, ICM starts. <laughs> because prior to that, everybody has the same expectation, right? When you right. first start, everybody has the same number of chips. Everybody has the same um, part of the pot, so to speak. But as soon as somebody is eliminated, now that goes up. And as people are eliminated, it goes up and up. So what Taylor's saying is it's uh, ICM is a gradual thing that goes throughout the whole tournament. And not a lot of people understand that. Um, I think with we watched Chris's deep dives lately. He's been talking about tournament um, 
stages of the tournament mm-hmm. where um, things change, where your how you approach the tournament changes. And we most recently we went through um, the accumulation phase, mm-hmm. and that's usually when we got about halfway, right, um, where the blinds start really go- ramping up. Now, now you're you're trying to accumulate chips, and you're embracing variance because you need to get to the bubble, right? You can't. You don't want to go out to you know. You don't want to go into the bubble with no chips because you won't make it. So this is an accumulation and you're willing to take variance. Well, then once you get past that and start getting close to the bubble, now ICM becomes a huge factor. And your ranges have to change. Your approach to the game has to change. You have to pay attention to who has you covered, who do you have covered, and those types Mm. of, of, of things come into play much more so as you get closer to the bubble. Yeah, definitely like stack size is one of those things that becomes much more important and relative stack size to the other the other players at the table. Mark, you look like you've got something to add there. Yes, um, like in ICM situations, you basically don't want to flip. Right. But you want to be the first guy that is all in. Yes. So he has yes. to call it off. So you never want to call it off. Unless yeah. you are actually, you have a hand that dominates the hands that he's shoving. So like, what, what are you, some you what are have, some good examples of that? Yeah, talk a little bit about um, what kind of hands those might be. So let's say you're on the button and you open ace ten off and the small band goes all in. That's just a fold. Like actually it's for 20 big blinds. Sure. Like um in most situations it's a fold. Because the small one will never go all in with a hand that is worse than ace 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless he's like a really good pro, then he will shove some other ace X. But like, I don't see it in casino, like in live games where people just shove like an ace two suited. Like, I just right. don't see that. Right. Sure. And um, then even like if he shove, if you think he shoves ace two suited, ace two suited are only four combos and those. Do not make up for the 16 combos of ace king off, ace queen off, ace check off. So even Love if it. you know he's shoving those like ace two suited to ace five suited, whatever, it's not enough. So you have to find other hands that you dominate because he's shoving pairs and you're flipping against pairs and you're mm-hmm. dominated by the ace x region. So you have to find way more combos. So ace ten off would be a fold. Like the first call would be like ace queen off. Where you actually dominate ace jack off, and then maybe he shoves king queen. So you actually have to think about do you dominate any hands that he's shoving? And it does not account for the suited variation. Hmm. I love that. I like that way. I really like that way of thinking about it. Like, what are the actual combos in their range, and how can we contort our own range to, to only be hands that are doing really well against those actual combos? Yes. Like that, that makes so sense. you don't want to go for a 50 50 flip. Right, right. Yeah. This is the wrong time in the tournament to take that flip. That's um, because yeah. of risk premium. You need a yeah. higher, you need a higher equity. Your hand needs to have higher equity to make that call than it would be earlier in the tournament, where it's more of a chip EV situation. Yeah. So yeah. when you get to ICM, yeah, you have a risk premium. So all of a sudden, instead of needing fifty percent, you might need sixty-five percent. 
mm-hmm. to make that mm-hmm. worth a call. Ace-10 yeah. doesn't have 65% against much. That's going to be jamming. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So, and and we talked about sort of how the, the two biggest ICM events in the tournament are typically uh, the, the cash bubble and then the final table or, or, or some one of the latter events near the final mm-hmm. table. Um, so I'll ask uh, Taylor and Rob, uh, similarly to what I asked Mark earlier, how, w- what signs can you get? What actions can the other people at the table display to you that make you think, oh, this person is ICM aware or, oh, this person is not ICM aware? What are some of the uh, things that they do that give you that impression, Taylor? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are some very like key ones that you can pick up on. Um, so when I was playing and we were down to like 12 people left, uh, there was one person at my table that was getting up to look at the other table and see what the other table's chip stacks were, <laughs> right? Like that person cares about like, where's everyone else at in this tournament? Yep. The other people at the table, butts in chairs and like, didn't care. And I'm not saying like, Hey, get up and like, always be doing this and always be scouting it out. But like, you got to have some sort of like relative knowledge of like, where's the rest of the field at in terms of chip stacks. Um, Cause the person that was looking was on the shorter side, probably not the shortest stack, but maybe call it like eighth out of 12. And That's like, they're trying, they're trying to yeah. understand, you know, am I eighth out of 12? Am I 11th out of 12? Am I fifth out of 12? Like where am I at within this rank? Because that can change how I'm going to view these different spots. Um, So that was one. And the other, I think is just kind of like the general approach to like how hands play out and understanding like bet sizing just goes way down when we get Mm. into ICM situations. And some people just kind of not understanding that and still opening to like, 3x off of a 12 big blind stack and right. like then a short stack jams and then they sit and think about it and then like ultimately fold and it's just like okay like those are just like some of those easy spots you see in casino tournaments where you're just like okay yeah this person isn't like thinking all the way through on so many of these different pieces that they have to be thinking about when we're in these icm spots because you have to know about the chip stacks at other tables at your own tables where are you opening into and all those different types of things? Yeah, I've said before, who you really want at your table are the people who who make open raises. And then when they're re-raised, that's when they start thinking about ICM. <laughs> those are the people that you really want that are just kind of like playing on autopilot until their uh, stack is threatened because they're going to be opening wider than they should and then folding a lot. And what they should really be doing is just opening tighter and as you say, Rob, uh, sorry, as you say, Taylor, to, to smaller sizes. Uh, Rob, I think I know what you're going to say, but it's a good one. Why don't you let the cat out of the I don't know that you know what I'm going to say, but I <laughs> notice um, people wanting to make hands. Mm. And they do this throughout the whole tournament. And they get to this ICM point, And they don't realize that trying to make hands is going to do nothing but diminish their chip stack. Mm. and give them no opportunity to make the money because they're playing too many. They're still playing too many hands and they're just, you know, somebody raises say in middle position and they call on the button. I mean, what are you calling with on the button? (laughs) If you have a hand worth playing on the button, you should be three betting 
it should either be three betting or folding, basically, period. You know, there's no there's no benefit in making a call in that spot, trying to make a hand with your seven eight suited. You know, it's just it just doesn't make any sense. So you see you that paid. happening. Pardon me? I'm sorry. Um, it's not going to get you paid making a hand, right? People don't want to Correct. Go. Yeah. Correct. Right. Yeah, good point. Good point. Because other people are less likely to pay you off because maybe they're more ICM. Right. Um, Rob, what I thought you were going to say, you've said this before, and it's so smart. You're quoting one of the authors from the book study that you run uh, every two weeks here, is that in, I, in high ICM situations, all our actions get demoted. So something right. that used to be a raise might be a call. Something that used to be a call now becomes a fold. Something that used to be a right. big bet now becomes a small bet. And that's just one of the ways that we kind of adjust to, to ICM. You know, it, it's a general rule. It's not always going to be true. Yeah, and I, didn't, most general I didn't think I needed to say that because Taylor already did. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, uh, so now that we kind of know how to spot some of these players that are ICM aware and some that aren't, how do we adjust our play against them? So like the first thing that jumps out to me is that if players are ICM aware, they're going to be their ranges are going to look very different they're going to have hands that have blockers in them they're not going to care much about playability um they're going to have more raised folds in their game intentionally and they're also going to be players that you can actually apply pressure to so i'm i'm actually more likely to be shoving on the guy that's standing up looking around at the other tables at the tournament because i know they're thinking about their their tournament life how do we adjust if we find a player like in the big blind that is not icing? What what are we going to do differently um, that we that we wouldn't do if they were icing? Taylor, you on the jump. Yeah, it, it's a little bit tough to like know exactly how they're viewing this in terms of like not ICM aware because that could like impact you in like multiple different ways. Um, I think there's a lot of people that when they're not not ICM aware, they'll call too often. And like, like Rob was trying to say, they try to make hands and to counteract that, you just kind of wait for them to show that sign of like passivity and bet them off no matter, like almost no matter what, even when you have a hand that potentially beats some of their hands that they're like still checking and like doing stuff with sometimes just helps to like, just keep applying pressure versus those players and just keep forcing them to try to put in chips. And when they don't make hands, get out of there. And when they are calling you, when you're trying to apply pressure, generally speaking, it means they made some sort of like made hand. And then you decide where am I at within my spectrum? Do I have a strong made hand? I'm going to continue to value bet because you may continue to value bet thinner than you would versus another opponent because another opponent may call you way tighter than they would. Uh, so you can go, you know, top pair, middle kicker, and just go for three streets with them because they're not going to fold second pair. Whereas other players that are very ICM aware, they're not going to give you too much with second pair or anything like that. So uh, you probably don't want to keep firing top pair weak kicker into them. Uh, so it's a matter of like trying to understand where are they at with how they're viewing hands and then how do you need to change your behaviors to kind of counteract in your favor? I love that. Rob, do you have something? No, I was just, I was going to kind of reiterate the same thing. I think you, you play 
strong against the player because there's players that are not ICM aware that will call every big blind no matter what. Right, They'll always right, call right. on a big blind because that's what they do. And they're not ICM aware, so they're just going to call. And you play aggressive against them until you see them fall or raise. And then you then you make your evaluation. Then if they're raising, they've got something because they're playing very <laughs> passively normally, right? Yeah. So if they're calling a big bet, well, you shouldn't be making a big bet to start with because you're ICM aware. But <laughs> if they're calling a bet at all, that means they generally have something. And unless you have something, you better not keep pursuing it because you're never going to get them to fold. You're never going to, unless you have a good hand that you're willing mm-hmm. to put more chips in. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, just, you know, take your lumps. If they happen to catch something, so be it. Don't don't make it worse by putting more chips in. Yeah. Yeah, don't compound that error. I like it because right. they've already narrowed their range. They've already strengthened their range by calling in the first place. So all that error has already folded. And don't yep. don't try and get them to fold the hand because they didn't drive all the way here to fold the hand. Uh, all right, Taylor, you had something else there, I think? Yeah, um, another good one um, that I use quite frequently is let people bluff into you that aren't ICM aware. Um, how often do you see it where a hand goes uh, raise and then someone defends a flop comes out and it goes check bet call turn goes check check and then on the river that out of position player leads in to the other person because they showed weakness on the turn uh, absolutely and yeah and it happens all the time how like how should those situations like play out when you're in ICM different types of spots like you don't want to be like thin value betting you don't want to be leading too much on the river but there's a lot of players that just know like that rhythm and ah they showed weakness i'm going to try and take this away on the river here and like bet into them and this is another one of those like situations if you can protect your turn checking range in ICM mm-hmm. situations and let them bet into you and you just kind of call with your value that can be a huge spot because a lot of people over index into like this line of thinking and not to the fact that like hey their chips are super valuable they shouldn't be just trying to bluff you off with these random air hands in these spots uh and you can kind of like really get those people that are so used to just kind of like that chip ev positive play that we Mm. all like try and take advantage of but you can kind of counteract those uh, casino regs with that type of play i love it um, we're going to next week, we're going to talk about one of the hands that Taylor played at the final table of this tournament. But, uh, before we leave today, Kim or Mark, do either of you have any other thoughts on this sort of subject? Uh, Mark, you do you have anything there? You know, it's really interesting that wh- whenever the buying becomes bigger, everyone's ICM aware. Like if you go for, if you play a 10 K, nobody wants to box. Everyone wants to cash for the 10 K. <laughs> Although it's the same ICM pressure that uh, happens in a $200 tournament. It's just like people are actually emotionally attached to the $200 and to the 10K. So um, that's why I like playing those 5Ks or 10Ks because people fold more. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, because they're under more pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I could tell. I could tell. Mark, Mark's, uh, Mark's a Blusterini approved player who likes to just get his chips in the middle and apply pressure all the time. Yeah, so I mean, also, like, when, you, when, you, when you talk about like the 
check no the seabed and then check call line and then turn check check like yes you're protected like for for the river aggression but what if what if i come out and bet three times the pot you know like mm. it's no limit after all right like now i bet three times the pot and now like if you call and you're wrong you have five big bands left like there are a lot of like creative stuff that you can do that i mean like it's i think it's a huge topic i live for that <laughs> yeah nice yeah so we could we'll, we'll we'll actually probably have another episode sometime soon just talking about that specifically um but yeah and, and i think one of the things that makes these casino dailies a little more uh uh predictable is that i think the, the, there are fewer players who are going to lead 3x pot on the river and so you can yeah. kind of you don't have to tell you but you could around. do that right yeah if anybody, right, yeah you could if do anybody that. does that to you Old immediately because they've got it. <laughs> yeah, in our games. Yeah, in our games. Yeah, they've got exactly, it. exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. you just keep, you keep like pushing us, like pumping yeah. on us. Like. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, this has been a really fun conversation, uh, folks. Um, I want to thank uh, the Running Aces Hotel, Racetrack, and Casino because we couldn't do what we do without their support. And I want to thank uh, Mark and Kim and Rob and Taylor for their insights tonight. Um, stick around for next week. We'll be talking about a hand uh, from that final table. And thanks to you, uh, the listeners. We couldn't do it without all your support over the years. So thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week on the next edition of the Rex Poker Podcast. Right, have a good night. Everybody.